When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B1 Triumph Her earliest memory was probably the triumph. It was all pretty overwhelming. The flowers decorating every home, the incense pouring from the temples, and the anxious crowds filling the streets. Then the single loud note, and everything falling to silence. The procession began with the floats, depicting the eastern lands brought to heel in the recent campaigns. Each painting, statue, and model reflected a river crossed, a city sacked, a vital resource taken. As they rolled past, the crowd began to erupt into cheers and applause. Behind the floats creaked the wagons, bearing heaps of captured weapons and armor, all polished to a blinding brilliance. Next came the slaves, carrying decorative vessels overflowing with treasure. They were followed by the priests, leading the sacred bulls to the sacrifice. Then came the noble hostages, shuffling and downcast and bound in chains of gold. Behind the captives marched the victorious legions of Rome, unconquered veterans who'd given their all for their general and been brought safely home. At the head of the legions rode the central figure of the procession. His chariot was pulled by four white horses along an unfurling carpet strewn with fresh flowers. The man within stood immobile, like the statue of a god. A laurel rested on his brow, his cheeks were stained dark red, and the heavy folds of a tunic, dyed Tyrian purple and trimmed with gold, were draped across his shoulder. This was the general, her father, and the most powerful man in the known world. His name was Mark Antony of Rome. Sitting with her family in the royal reviewing stand, the six-year-old Cleopatra Selene had no idea that the entire spectacle was an exercise in treason. 
The streets thronging with joyful crowds weren't the twisted organic tangle of Rome, but the well-planned gridlines of Alexandria. It was a triumph marked by cool ocean breezes and seabirds wheeling overhead, down an ancient thoroughfare commissioned by Alexander the Great. But no matter how idyllic, holding a triumph anywhere but Rome was not simply frowned upon or discouraged, but forbidden, unprecedented, and sacrilegious in the extreme. It was quite simply treason. Mark Antony knew it, he just didn't care. If there was any doubt, Antony soon removed it. While the masses of Alexandria continued their celebrations, its leading citizens were assembled in the city's gymnasium. From a position near the tribunal, Selene watched as her family mounted a stage of solid silver to take their seats on thrones of gold. Antony had traded his triumphal regalia for his adopted Egyptian dress, modeled on the god Osiris, while Cleopatra wore a robe sacred to the goddess Isis. Just below the pair sat Selene's three brothers, each on a golden throne. The eldest, at thirteen years old, was Selene's stepbrother, Ptolemy Caesar, better known as Caesarian. His father had also been a great man from the distant land of Rome named Julius Caesar. Selene knew that something very bad had happened to him, but that afterwards he'd become a god. The divine Julius was always mentioned in the most respectful tones. As Selene watched, a hush fell across the gymnasium. Her father had signaled that he was ready to speak. In a booming voice, Antony proclaimed that Caesarion was king of kings and true heir of Julius Caesar, and that one day he'd be Cleopatra's successor in ruling over Egypt, Cyprus, Libya, and Coelsyria. Her excitement grew as Antony went on to proclaim her own twin brother, six-year-old Alexander Helios, king of Armenia, Media, and Parthia. The latter, of course, once it was eventually subdued. Lastly, he declared her younger brother, two-year-old Ptolemy Philadelphus, king of Phoenicia, Cilicia, and coastal Syria. At each proclamation, the nobles erupted into cheers and applause. I should also point out that, according to Plutarch, Helios and Ptolemy were dressed in adorable little ethnic outfits befitting their new kingdoms, with cute little boots and hats, and I'm sure the iPhone cameras were flashing left and right. Standing just off stage in the midst of her slaves, Selene was not only happy for her brothers, but also for herself. Her parents had told her that she was also to become a queen, and would one day rule over Crete and Cyrenaica. She probably had no idea where these places were, or, for that matter, the places Antony had just given to her brothers, but the point was clear. Her family would rule over the lands of the East until the end of time. After all, her father, the great Mark Antony, had just said so. As nominal master of the eastern half of the Republic, and commanding general of several recent and apparently successful campaigns, you could be forgiven for thinking that these territories might have been Antony's to give. 
Well, they weren't. I mean, some were actual Roman provinces, so they were maybe Rome's to give, if you wanted to, you know, run it by the Senate for approval. But other lands were client kingdoms, meaning they had their own kings, who just happened to be allied with Rome. For these territories, the donations were virtually meaningless, at least in any practical sense. As for the recent Eastern campaigns, well, for that, we need to lay a bit of groundwork. The Parthian forces of King Orodes II had pretty much wiped the floor with the legions of Marcus Crassus back in 53 BC. Resonantly, well, for me at least, the battle took place near the ancient city of Haran, where the Medes had crushed Neo-Assyrian holdouts over 500 years before. Anyway, 20,000 dead troops, one dead triumvir, and a few stolen eagle standards pretty much guaranteed Rome's lasting hostility. Julius Caesar was preparing to execute his own Parthian campaign at the time of his murder. As effective inheritor of the East, the task and Caesar's battle plan had fallen to Mark Antony. In 36 BC, flush with money from Cleopatra and additional troops obtained from his fellow triumvir Octavian, Antony proceeded to Armenia to review his invasion force. It was composed of 60,000 Roman infantry, 10,000 Roman cavalry, and 30,000 allied troops, including 13,000 furnished by the king of Armenia, Artavasdes II. All in all, a hundred thousand troops under one of Rome's most able commanders. The Parthians had good reason to worry. Antony first marched into neighboring Media Atropony, whose king was allied with Parthia. His plan was to seize the Median capital of Frospa, where he could winter his legions before resuming the campaign in the spring. In preparation, he'd brought along a number of huge siege engines, including an 80-foot-long battering ram. But annoyed they were slowing him down, Antony decided to forge on ahead without them. Whatever the reason for his impatience, Plutarch blames it on a desire to return to Cleopatra, this ended up being a very bad move especially when the new Parthian king, Phraates IV, sent his cavalry down to capture and burn all the poorly guarded equipment. Which, I mean, that was it. There was no wood in the area to build with, and you really can't take fortified cities without siege engines, so game over. Shaken by the loss, Artavasdes gathered his forces and headed home. This left Antony and his legions to make their way back across Media and Armenia in the now dead of winter, with little food to forage and under constant Parthian attack. By the time they reached safety, their prolonged retreat had cost Antony a quarter of his troops, and the traumatized survivors were howling for blood. Luckily for Antony, it wasn't his blood, but the blood of Artavasdes, the king who left them high and dry in their hour of need. The chance for revenge finally came around a year later. On the pretext of a second Parthian invasion, Antony returned to Armenia, 
where he invited Artavasdes to meet with him to discuss renewing their alliance. Whatever favors Antony promised must have trumped the king's good judgment, because Artavasdes eventually showed up in Antony's camp. Once there, he was promptly seized, put in chains, and cast in the role of highest-ranking captive in Antony's Alexandrian triumph. Meanwhile, back in the capital, Artavasdes was succeeded by his son Artaxes II, who returned Armenia to Parthian control and followed up with a spiteful massacre of the local Roman garrison. So, long story short, and please do not tell the citizens of Alexandria, but the recent Parthian and Armenian campaigns, the ones we just held a big triumph for, yeah, they really, really did not go all that well. But, of course, if the citizens of Alexandria could be kept in the dark, how much easier to hide the defeats from the royal children. To Selene, it was always the same. Her father would leave Egypt for some new adventure and return to his loving family crowned in glory. It must have seemed like the natural order of things. But still, in the months following the donations, Selene must have noted a change in her father's mood. Maybe not in the company of the children, but in occasional unguarded moments. Antony's voice booming down the corridor, railing in furious anger against someone. Maybe there was a name, or maybe it was just that awful boy, that horrible boy, that faithless boy. Either way, something was clearly amiss. When Selene was eight, she learned that her father was leaving Egypt once again to make war against the Parthians. Only this time Cleopatra would be at his side. Their first stop would be the city of Ephesus, where they'd meet with allies from Rome. When the day came, Selene and her brothers were taken to the palace harbor to watch the royal barge set sail, alongside 200 Roman and Egyptian warships, all bound for Anatolia. The months that followed brought little news, at least little that was passed down to the children. Instead, there were only hints, rumors, and fragments stolen from tutors and slaves. Within the royal household, the most eminent tutor was Nicholas of Damascus, a historian and philosopher recruited from Syria. Assuming she was inquisitive, and he was even partially forthcoming, it may have been from Nicholas that Selene first heard the name of Octavian. How would you explain to a nine-year-old girl, even a precocious one, the complexities of Roman politics in the late Republic? Maybe it was enough to say that Octavian, who'd once been her father's ally, was spreading lies about her parents to turn the people of Rome against them. But her father's family, the Antonii, were much older and more respected than the Octavii, so most Romans wouldn't believe Octavian's lies. In fact, many of Rome's senators and both consuls had joined her parents in Ephesus to oppose Octavian. In the end, whether Selene was privy to such knowledge or forced to subsist on rumor didn't really matter. Nothing could be known for sure until her parents returned. 
Finally, in September of 31 BC, the children were told that dozens of Egyptian warships were approaching the harbor. At their head, displaying the clear markings of victory, was the royal barge of Queen Cleopatra. Once she'd been ferried ashore, the queen was reunited with her children. As always, Cleopatra exuded beauty, confidence, and strength, and easily deflected their questions and concerns. All they needed to know is that a great battle had been won, and their father would be returning home soon. After a short and happy reunion, Cleopatra ushered the children away and summoned her senior advisors. After months of relative quiet, the palace was soon bustling with activity. Selene learned that her mother was reopening the Great Canal, connecting the Nile to the Red Sea. According to her tutors, the canal had first been completed by the Persian king Darius I, then reopened centuries later by Selene's own ancestor, Ptolemy Philadelphus the same great pharaoh after whom her younger brother had been named. Exactly why the queen was doing so was never made clear. The next time Cleopatra summoned the children, it must have been fairly awkward. She was forced to admit that, yes, the rumors were true. Their father had returned to Alexandria and built himself a small house near the lighthouse of Pharos. Of course, he loved them all and would see them again soon, but he was making great plans for their future, and his work required solitude. Like any bright nine-year-old girl, Celine probably suspected there was more to the story. When she next saw her father, she must have been sure of it. On the surface, Antony was all smiles and warmth and comforting explanations. But beneath, there was a hollowness. A man who'd shed both hopes and fears and resigned himself to fate. True, he was back in the palace, back with his family, and back drinking and carousing with all his old favorites. But Celine noticed that her mother, who'd once matched her father in revelry, now seemed impatient with his carefree attitude. Antony soon threw himself into preparing a public celebration for his eldest son, Marcus Antonius, nicknamed Antillus, or the Archer. Antillus was Antony's son by his third wife, Fulvia, and had come to Alexandria with his father five years earlier. Sixteen years old, gregarious, and a bit full of himself, Antillus was a rare presence in the royal palace, possibly at Cleopatra's request. But still, as his official heir under Roman law, Antony was eager to celebrate his son's coming of manhood. At the same time, Selene saw her mother engaging in many long and serious talks with her older brother Caesarion, who was also sixteen. Before long, Cleopatra announced that Caesarion was to be crowned king of Egypt and co-ruler with his mother. The twin ceremonies, Antillus's coming of age and Caesarion's coronation, kept the city occupied for weeks. Looking back later, Selene must have been astonished. While they were engaging in feasts and celebrations, powerful enemies were closing in all around them.
Spring brought an end to the pleasant facade. Before long, a constant stream of messengers, soldiers, and administrators were coming and going from the royal palace. Soon, Selene's tutor, Euphronios, was sent away on a royal embassy to Octavian. The anxiety of the court during his absence hinted at the mission's gravity. But whatever reply Euphronios brought back only heightened the growing sense of doom. In Selene's presence, he was always reassuring. But she'd also seen Euphronios speaking urgently with her mother when her father was away. Finally, after weeks of mounting tension, came the moment that changed everything. Cleopatra entering the twins' chambers and addressing them with a firm resolve. The capital was no longer safe for them. Selene, Helios, and Ptolemy were to leave Alexandria at once and travel to Thebes. Their older brother Caesarion was being sent to India by way of Ethiopia in the care of his tutor Rhodon. Their mother and father would join them all once things had been resolved. Until then, they were not to worry, and, above all, never forget who they were. Once their belongings had been gathered, the children fled the city, in the company of their slaves, bodyguards, and household staff. Sometime before reaching Thebes, they were intercepted by a detachment of Roman cavalry. By their demeanor, the party quickly surmised they weren't Antony's men. The orders they gave were simple and direct. By the command of Octavian, the children of Antony and Cleopatra were to be brought back to Alexandria, where their fate would be decided. The return to the capital must have been filled with silence and unanswered questions. Alexandria, once bustling and vital, now seemed empty and still, a city occupied and waiting on the judgment of its conqueror. The ominous atmosphere was reinforced as statues of Mark Antony were bound and toppled by groups of Roman soldiers. The children were taken to the gymnasium, where Antony had so recently given them title to his eastern lands. Only now, instead of holding cheering crowds, the space stood virtually empty. The Romans were using it as a makeshift command center and a line of Alexandrian nobles waited to petition their new ruler. Atop the tribunal, where her parents and brothers had once sat in triumph, now sat another man. He was encircled by a group of soldiers and administrators, but the moment he saw the party, he motioned for his aides to be still. The man wore a simple toga trimmed in purple, and his appearance and stature seemed otherwise unremarkable, particularly in contrast to Selene's larger-than-life father. But still, there must have been something about Octavian marking him out from the other Romans, even if it was only the respect and deference they clearly showed him. Either way, the meeting was likely brief just enough for the cavalry commander to give his report, and then they were ushered away. To Selene's surprise, she and her brother soon found themselves back in their own royal chambers, where they were told they'd be safe and their every need attended to.
It was likely in the days that followed that a trusted member of the royal household finally revealed their family's fate. Antony and Cleopatra were both dead, each by their own hand. Caesarion was also dead, betrayed by his tutor Rhodon and executed on Octavian's orders. Antillus had also been betrayed by his tutor Theodorus. He'd been seized by Roman soldiers near the statue of the divine Julius and beheaded in the street. But Octavian had also decided that Selene and her two brothers, being children and no threat, were to live. And not only live, but travel to Rome, where they'd stay as guests of his family. The strange fever dream her life had become showed no signs of breaking, as Selene and her brothers were put on a ship bound for Italy. After a week at sea, they finally put in at the Roman port of Ostia. From there, it was a half-day's travel up the Ostian Way before they reached the outskirts of Rome. Passing through the Servian walls near the foot of the Aventine Hill, the children were taken down the street of public pools running east of the Circus Maximus. If Selene had expected Rome to put Alexandria to shame, well, the reality was probably disappointing. For someone raised with Greek order, symmetry, and proportion, Rome must have seemed like a sprawling, disorganized mess, its monuments the product of either theft or imitation. It must have been hard to reconcile as the birthplace of Octavian, Mark Antony, and the divine Julius. Ahead, to her right, rose the Celian Hill, paired on her left with the Palatine. It was on the latter, the children were told, that the family of Octavian resided. It was also to be their new home. At the end of their long journey, they finally arrived at a stately villa. They were welcomed by its mistress, a young Roman woman of dignity and grace. She introduced herself as Octavia, sister of Octavian, and, yet another surprise, former wife of their father Mark Antony. From this day forward, the children were to consider her their own mother, and Octavian their uncle, and they would be well cared for for the rest of their lives. But first, they'd be introduced to Roman society during a great celebration— to be held once Octavian returned. Sadly, young Ptolemy took ill and died during his first Roman winter. This left Selene with only her twin brother Helios for comfort. In one sense, they were hardly alone. Octavia's household was full of young children, including three more of Antony's. But after all she'd just been through, it's hard to imagine Selene instantly embracing her new family. At the very least, she must have been dreading Octavian's return. When the day of celebration came, the twins were dressed in royal Egyptian finery brought with them from Alexandria. While her brother Helios was arrayed in the symbols of the sun, Selene's dress reflected her own ties to the moon. Her hair was entwined with flowers and encircled by a golden diadem, 
Dark coal marked her eyes, golden rings were placed on her fingers, and golden sandals on her feet. It was likely when she felt the golden chain being secured around her neck that Celine knew something was very, very wrong. Arriving at the staging area, Celine must have been horrified to find a large float bearing a garish wax image of her dead mother. There could be no clearer sign that her nightmare was far from over. But it was only when she heard the single loud note in the distance that Celine finally recognized where she was. It was, of course, a triumph. <laughs> 